dismissed to children's church or the Christmas practice. I want to begin this morning by reading our psalm together, and I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Psalm 95, stand with me as we read. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we open your word, we pray that we would hear your voice and that you would find hearts that are not hardened but softened, that the shouts of joy that we offer to you would be genuine, that your name would be glorified and that our joy would be full. Do that work in our hearts through your word now, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Psalm 95 begins with such a sweet invitation to worship. There are two main aspects that we see in this psalm that instruct us about the Lord's desire for worship. The first element you see in the first seven verses, and we call it a glad welcome. A glad welcome, verses 1 through 7. And you heard it as we read. O come, let us sing to the Lord. O come, let us worship and bow down. There is so much joy, excitement, thrill in these verses. Let's look at that together. And then we'll see what the Lord combines that glad welcome with. In verse 1, O come, let us sing to the Lord. There is one main command that overrides all of these other invitations, and that is come. It's an invitation, a welcome to you to come and worship the Lord. 
He goes into fuller description beginning in verse 1. Come and what? What should we do when we come? What is it that worship consists of? He says, let us sing to the Lord. But it's not just the idea of let's sing a song. It's actually the idea of shouting joyfully. Shouting joyfully. Yes, singing is included, but it's not a sweet, soft song as much as it is a joyous shout to the Lord. A song that is not forced, but a song that you can't hold back. One that is so exploding in your heart, it comes out in a shout of praise. Let us sing to the Lord. Or you could, you could say that's a jubilee. Let's make jubilee or jubilate. Sing joyfully. The idea is that of excitement and also of being loud. <laughs> it's not a quiet, soft song, but one that demands our attention. The second aspect we see in this invitation is to shout victoriously. Make a joyful noise, the ESV translates it. The idea is, again, a shout, but this time not one so much of excitement and joy. This time, he is saying, in victory. It's the same word that's used often when Israel is victorious in a battle. What do you do when you win the battle? You shout in victory, almost like a chant. It's a loud and victorious joy. Why and to whom? We shout with joy, make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. He's the rock of our salvation, and so we shout to him. And then third, in verse 2, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. There's not only an invitation to sing and to worship, but more than that, to enter his presence and to do so with thanksgiving. The idea of entering his presence is something like walking into the tabernacle or to the, uh, to the uh, temple and bringing with you something to offer him. And here, what is our offering? What do we bring to him? We come into his presence with thanksgiving. You remember what Paul said in Acts 17, God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. We cannot bring to God something that he needs, but we can bring something to him. And that's thanksgiving for all that he has done for us. And so what we bring to him is an offering, literally an offering of thanks, of praise to him for all that he has done. What a joyful invitation this is. Come, let us sing for joy. Let us shout for joy. Shout in victory to the Lord. Let's enter his presence with thanksgiving. And then fourth, let's make a joyful noise. It's the same uh, word used at the beginning. Let us make a joyful noise, but this time with songs of praise or instrumental songs. The idea is something that's well thought out. It's planned out. Let's offer him these songs of praise. These four aspects to worship 
are all part of the invitation. And this invitation is offered to all of us freely, that we can come worship him, sing to him, shout victoriously to him, come into his presence with thanksgiving, and make a joyful noise with songs of praise. Now, it's interesting We know that God demands things of us. We know that he has commands for our lives. But don't we tend to think that those commands are usually external? Have you ever maybe even said something like, well, I can't change the way I feel? Hopefully you didn't use that on your spouse recently. I can't change the way I feel. Don't we think that there's a sense in which the way I feel is, it's out of my control? And there's something to that. You can't on a dime change the way that you feel. But what does God command of us? It's not mere singing. It's not mere shouting. It's not mere offering. But God places a demand upon our affections. He demands not just a shout, but a joyous shout. Now think about that for a second. God demands of us joy. Does that seem ironic? Does it seem almost a paradox? How can you tell somebody, delight, enjoy, if they don't like it? But God does it. He demands it. It's a very difficult concept to get. How can God demand us to have a particular feeling if we don't have control of it? Well, we do to some extent. And if you turn back to Psalm 90, which Pastor Jeremy preached on two weeks ago, there's a verse that I think gives us the answer to this question. How can God place a demand upon our affections? Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Now that, that is critical. Satisfy us in the morning, why? so that we may rejoice and be glad. So while it may be true, you can't decide right now, I'm going to start being joyful. What can you do? You can be satisfied in God. And when you are, what happens? Your affections follow. Your affections follow. Our worship comes out of a delight from God. You can't force a joyful song. You can't. You have to have a basis for it. And that basis is delight, love for God. I'm sure most of you know that yesterday the Buckeyes beat the Hawkeyes 34 to 24. I want you to imagine for a second that the Hawkeyes actually upset Ohio State. (laughs) Hard to believe. It's not far-fetched. They were ahead for 
part of the game. They were ahead at the end of the half. Now, what, what would you expect if the Hawkeyes won yesterday and I walk into church and up, walk, up, up walks Mark Sullivan? I know he would be beaming. Why? Because the Hawkeyes won. And then Jason Grimes walks up, seems kind of down, sad. I would know either, one, he had no idea what happened yesterday, or two, something catastrophic happened in his life. <laughs> and so Jason walks up, and Mark is just on fire. He's, his whole face is alight with joy. Yes, they won. This is so exciting. And Jason has no idea what happened. He missed the game. He was coming back from vacation and missed the game. He doesn't know what happened. Why at that moment in time is Jason not rejoicing? It's not because the Hawkeyes did poorly. It's because he doesn't know what they did. And in the same way, we often find ourselves not rejoicing in God. Not because he lacks something great. Not because he hasn't done something worth singing about. But because we simply missed the game. We haven't seen what he's done. Our lives have been so filled with distractions. We haven't taken the time to watch all that he has done. And when we do see what he has done, the natural response that we have is one of joy and celebration. That's the invitation to worship. Come, all are invited. Come and worship him. Come, sing praise to him. Make a joyful noise to him. Second, we see the instigation for worship. What's the grounds for that? What drives us to this worship? And what does the psalmist do? Look at verse 3. Come sing, come worship, come praise, come into his presence. Why? Verse 3. For the Lord is in all of his explanation is designed to point us back to coming and worshiping him. What's the grounds for it? Why? What motivates us to do that? It's not duty. It is his greatness. We're invited to worship, and now the psalmist gives us a reason to do so. Before we look at, at what exactly he says, I... I want you to think of your favorite uh, movie or perhaps your favorite song if no movie comes to mind. Now, it's, at some point, it's your favorite because you experienced its goodness. At some point, you watched a movie and were so moved by it or you heard a song and were so gripped by it, your feelings delighted you. You loved the way it made you feel. Or perhaps you loved what it did in your mind. But you experienced its goodness. Now what happens if you wait a week or a month or a year? Or perhaps it's been a decade since you saw it. In your mind, 
you know what happened. You maybe can remember the events of the movie. And you might even remember how it made you feel. But you know what's not there anymore? The feeling itself. And in order to feel the way you did, you have to experience it again. Perhaps you recall it to mind. Oh, yeah, I remember when he said that. Oh, that was so funny. Or I remember this part of the song. I just love that. And our worship of God is similar to that. We may in our minds be able to recall what God has done. We may be able to cite some reasons that he is good. But we haven't, if we haven't experienced it, if we haven't focused on it, if we haven't listened to it for a while, then what happens? We don't feel it. It's not there anymore. Well, rather than overanalyze things, let me just suggest the reason for that is we haven't gone back to his word. We haven't reflected and focused on what he has done. And if we simply do that, then guess what becomes uh, stirred up in our hearts? The same joy that we had before. All right, let's look at, at what he says specifically. Verse 3, the first part. The main reason all of these are, are, are based on for the Lord is. The main reason who the Lord is. Why should we worship God? Fundamentally because of who he is. Not a threat, but his character, who he is. He gives us three main characteristics of God. Number one, the Lord is a great God. He's not just a God. He is great. He is mighty. He is powerful. Second, he says, he is a great king above all gods. Now, maybe you're thinking, I thought there was only one God. There's only one God. What does it mean that he's the great king above all gods? Anyone think that as you read it? What, what does that mean? He's above all gods. There's only one God. Well, there is, a, in a sense, only one God. There is only one real God. But there are many, Paul says, so-called gods. And as he explains that in 1 Corinthians, what we find out is that these so-called gods are actually angelic powers. Demons, he calls them. Now think about that. There are beings that have so much power, we can't fathom it. We don't get it. It's in a totally different realm than our power is. It's not a matter of having bigger muscles. They can do things that are impossible for us. And Paul, Paul tells us on several occasions that it is for principalities and powers and authorities and rulers in the heavenly places that God acts. Not just for us, but also for them. And if you think of Satan and his demons and all the hosts of hell and all of the, arch the archangel and all of the angels and all of the cherubim and seraphim and every angelic power, 
far beyond our comprehension, who sits above it all? Our God. Our great God is a king, a ruler, a master over all of them. He is a great God, and he is a great king above all other gods. And then the third reason for our worship, the third instigation, if you will, is that he is sovereign. He is sovereign. Verses 4 and 5 focus on his sovereignty. Let me read those. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. These two verses go together, and they have one fundamental point. God is sovereign. He is supreme, the ruler of all things. In his hand are the depths of the earth. And if you go to the peaks of the mountain, mountains, they're his. He's there. And the sea, what about it? In all of its terror, he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Now, I don't know if that inspires in you a sense of awe. Perhaps we've heard it so many times, it loses its power. Let me, let me help illustrate how powerful our God is. When it says the depths of the earth are in his hand, I want you to think about this. There, there are, there is the greatest, largest hole that's ever been dug, the deepest part of the earth, if you will, that we know of in Russia. The Soviets started it about 35 years ago. They started drilling down as fast as they could, and they had to invent new drill bits and new ways to, to keep digging. They dug for 24 years. They got to a depth of seven and a half miles. Seven and a half miles deep. By far the largest hole that we have on earth. <laughs> 24 years. And they had to stop, might surprise you, because the temperatures were so high, none of their equipment could continue working. They had anticipated that it would be somewhere around 100 degrees Celsius. In fact, it was 180 degrees Celsius. It was 350 degrees at that depth. Shocked them. They had no idea that it would be so hot. And eventually they had to give up. They stopped in 1994. Now that's a deep hole. It's, it's somewhere around three or four times deeper than any natural cave. <clears throat> if my head is the surface of the earth and my feet are at the center of the earth, if they were to drill down into the earth, that seven and a half miles would not penetrate my skull. That's how massive the earth is. And the psalmist says, God has it in his hands. He is a great God. He is sovereign over all things. 
That is our great God. And even as we talk about that, isn't there a kindling in your heart to want to sing and shout for joy to him because of how great he is, how mighty and wonderful he is? Now, there's an iteration or a repetition in verses 6 and 7. Now, so far, we've seen the invitation, we've seen the instigation. And then third, he repeats both of those. He gives another invitation, briefer, and another instigation, briefer. Look at 6 and 7. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our God. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture. Look at the similarities. There's another invitation to come, come. And it's also, again, in the context of worship. Come worship. And then there's a reason given for it. Why should we come in verse 1, come, let us sing to the Lord, for he is great. And now in verse 7, for he is our God. So those are some of the similarities. There's an invitation. It's to worship. And there's a reason, a basis for it. Then look at the differences. All of the initial ones seem to be focused on uh, the voice, our response vocally to what God has done. But in verse 7, or I'm sorry, verse 6, all of them are physical, bodily actions. Even the let us worship, they translate it this way because there's so many different words for the same thing. It's literally let us bow, let us kneel, let us kneel down. And that's a little too repetitive. They've, they've got to tweak it. Well, the idea of bowing is not just, I don't know, uh, generally bowing. It's a worship bow. It's what you would do before a false god. It's what you would do before the true god, but it's always in the context of worship. So there's a shift here from singing, which is our response to his greatness, one response anyway, and now the shift is to bowing, kneeling, which means we have recognized his greatness and we recognize where we belong in relation to him. We do not belong in relation to him, in a sense, in his face. We belong in relation to him at his feet. Let us bow down. A second difference in this repetition is the first, this is the first time where there's a personal connection to God. He is our God. It, it's almost, not quite, but it's almost as, as if the first verses are focused on God in general terms. Everyone can kind of acknowledge this. There's, there's an exception to that, but that's the general theme. Now the focus is we're involved here. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He's not just in general the creator, but he's the one who made me and you. He has made us all. A third difference, we're for, for the first time, we're told who we are. Look at verse 7. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. 
If you recognize God's greatness, there is a sense in which you want to sing and to shout for joy because it's so wonderful. It's so good. But we also recognize that we are but sheep. We rightly understand ourselves. Not only do we rightly understand him, that he is great and powerful, but we understand who we are. We're the people of his pasture. We're, we're the sheep of his hand. Just sweet little sheep. I know they're not always sweet, but we're the sheep of his hand. Now that ends the invitation. Come. Worship the Lord. Make a joyful noise. We have reason to do so. He is great. He is the great king above all gods. He's made everything. He's in control of everything. And then, shockingly, at the end of verse 7, begins a grave warning. A grave warning. The psalm begins with a glad welcome and ends with a grave warning. Now, you might think maybe they made an accident, and that really belongs with verse 8. Or some suggested, though uh, not many recently, maybe this was actually two psalms. <laughs> because there's such a contrast between the first part and the second part. All of this is joyful, sweet invitation. Come worship. And then seemingly out of nowhere, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. There is a serious warning. Look at verse 7 and 8. The end of 7 and 8. And I want you to see if you can figure out who's speaking. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. This is an oracle. This is God's statement to us. From verse 7b to the end is God speaking directly. It's not the psalmist telling us what God said. It's God speaking to us. Now most, or I should not say most, many churches today, actually I probably should say most, uh, many churches today love the first half of this psalm and totally neglect the second half. That's a dangerous thing to do. While the welcome is sweet, while it's free, come, worship him, you're all invited, there needs to be a warning given. And it's the Lord who steps up to give it to us. Look at what he says. First is exhortation. Verses 7, the end of 7 to 9. 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day of Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works. There's a prohibition that the Lord gives, and it's this. Do not harden your heart. I don't, maybe you have a good idea of what that means. When I hear that, I'm not entirely sure. I get a couple of ideas. Normally when I think of, of hardening, uh, you can think of this, the ground. If the ground dries up, what happens to it? It gets hard. That's, that's not actually the idea here. We, we find this word used in an agricultural setting Guess what with oxen? Now, some of you have cows. Some of you have sheep, goats. The idea of hardening your heart is the picture of putting a yoke on an oxen and the farmer takes the yoke and is leading the oxen. And if the oxen doesn't want to go, what does he do? He stiffens his neck. Even dogs and cats can do that. The dog doesn't want to go out. What does it do? Digs its heels in. Pulls against you. That's exactly what God is telling us not to do. It's not the idea of somehow passively becoming hard, but the idea of actively resisting his will. So what God is saying to us this morning is, if you hear his voice, do not resist what he calls you to. When you hear his voice, when you read his word, and he says something hard or something that seems impossible, don't harden your heart. Don't stiffen your neck. Don't be like that oxen who says, I don't want to. Now, not only does the Lord give the prohibition, but he then gives us a pattern. He references two events, and we're not going to spend a lot of time looking at them. But he, 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 he uh, gives two events, Meribah and Massah, both of which happened during the wilderness wandering. Both of them came in the context of the Israelites being out of water and thirsty. And what did they do? They tested the Lord. They put him to the test. And they said, if you remember, take us back to Egypt. Why did we even come with you? It might not seem like too crazy of a question. If you were to ever lead one and a half to two million people out into the desert, I'd suggest having a water supply lined up. That would be a good thing to have. I'd, I'd check your food supplies. But they went across the Red Sea, and within three days... They were out of water and out of food. And so they, they cried out against the Lord. They did not cry to the Lord. Lord, we saw you part the Red Sea. Will you now provide us food and water? Instead, they cried out against him. You don't give us the food we need. And the Lord's response to them is frightening. Look at verse 10. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. 
For 40 years, God says, I hated them. I abhorred them. The idea is not, I just, I don't like that. I hate it. It is loathing. They are miserable to me. They wander in their hearts. They haven't known my ways. And look at the the final point, the Lord's exclusion. This is an oath. Literally in the Hebrew it reads, if they enter my rest, dot, dot, dot. Kind of like, if I ever get my hands on you, you don't finish the sentence. That's what God says. If they enter my rest, done. Period. End of psalm. It's an oath. It means they will never enter my rest. How do you combine these two elements? This, the whole first half, this sweet welcome, this sweet invitation, and now this severe warning. This rest that God says they will not enter is not limited just to the promised land. The author of Hebrews makes it very clear that there is an eternal rest. And it is that which God promises they will never enter. I think the way that we can reconcile this is by looking to the cross. If you consider for a second, if you're honest with yourself, every single one of us has hardened our heart. And not only have we, we do regularly. Uh, Intermittently, maybe, would be a more hopeful way of saying it. We harden our hearts. But look at Christ. He was called out of Egypt, just like Israel was. He was led into the wilderness, just like Israel was. He hungered, just like Israel did. He thirsted, just like Israel did. And he was called to something frightening, just like Israel was. But what was Christ's response? He became obedient. Even when his father's voice rung out in terror to the cross, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's only by faith in his death It is only by faith in him being excluded from God's presence on the cross that we are allowed to enter his eternal rest. The invitation is genuine. Come. Put your faith in him. Come worship and bow down before him. But the warning is real. If you harden your heart, God will say, you shall not enter my rest. Today, if you hear his voice, if you are his sheep, do not harden your heart, but yield to him. And listen to what he says. My sheep We are the sheep of his pasture, or the sheep of his hands. 
Do, do, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. The exact opposite of hardening. And then listen to this sweet promise. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. That is entering his rest. So if you hear his voice today, do not harden your heart, but follow him. Let's pray. Lord, do a work in our hearts that we would be softened, that our necks would not stiffen against you. But may we hear your voice and respond by singing with shouts of praise, with songs of joy for who you are. May we have a picture of that in our minds that we might sing genuinely from joy. In Christ's name I pray, amen.